The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And uh, some of you might know we've been in the middle of a residential retreat this weekend that Shelley and I are teaching. Shelley is out at Common Ground's retreat property near Prairie Farm, Wisconsin, which we're just starting to operate after a long renovation. And then we have a, a couple dozen people online doing the retreat as well. And I'll join them right after this program in the morning. And one of the things we've been reflecting on during our residential retreat is, you know, why is there such a big deal about retreating? Even, you know, our daily 30-minute, 45-minute, hour-long sit that's a kind of retreating that we do every day. And then, you know, depending on our interest and our schedule and responsibilities, we might be able to go on a, a retreat a couple times a year. It might be a day-long retreat. It might be a three-month retreat. Some people at Common Ground have been on more than one three-month retreats. People like myself and Shelley and other long-time practitioners if we added up all of the intensive retreat practice we've done in our adult years, it would be more than a few years. I think I'm close to three years of my adult life. I've been on retreat in silence, doing sitting meditation, walking meditation, things like that. Now, I'm not saying that's everyone's cup of tea, or, <laughs> but I, I, what I'd like to do today is just reflect on this... Uh, this value of retreating. In, in Buddhism, early Buddhism in particular, we call that seclusion. And it can feel appropriately like, you know, I don't know if we should be suspicious, but it's definitely okay to wonder, like, what is all this about seclusion and retreating? Because we know firsthand that running away from our problems, you know, we have some unresolved things in our lives, and running away from it, not addressing it, that clearly is not a healthy, helpful thing to do. But one of the first things we discover when you're sitting, maybe even when you sat the, earlier this morning together, you know, when we sit and we clear the mind, settle the body, what do we notice? We notice our life. So retreating isn't some kind of escape. It's not like we're going to a spa and we've got delightful entertainments and beautiful massages and wonderful drinks to drink and, you know, tropical breezes. And <laughs> I mean, there are retreat centers in nice places for sure, but that's not what it's about. It's not an entertainment and it's not an escape. If retreat, if seclusion is going to be useful, we're secluding ourselves from the busyness, from our duties and responsibilities, so that we can actually meet our life as it is, with a little bit more integrity and a lot more sensitivity. So it's not an escape. And hopefully, especially over time, there are moments of seclusion that are quite healing, deeper states of calm and tranquility, more profound stillness and peacefulness, 
and then <laughs> more clarity and sensitivity to what's unfinished in the heart and mind and body. Profound doubts. And we learn to be with the whole spectrum of beautiful, wholesome inner states of calm and peace and tormented states, states of great doubt. We learn to we discover a wisdom and a kindness or a love that isn't shook, isn't disturbed by whatever can arise. I don't know about you, but I'm really interested in that. This is a well-known quote from the Buddha. You shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future. What is past is left behind the future is as yet unreached. Whatever quality is present, you clearly see right there. Not taken in, unshaken, that's how you, de that's how you develop the heart. Ardently doing what should be done today. For who knows, tomorrow, death, there's no bargaining with mortality. Whoever lives thus ardently, relentlessly, both day and night, has truly had an auspicious day. So says the peaceful sage. I love that. It's just that beautiful coming together of intimacy and non-grasping, non-attachment. And that's a nice way, you know, if you are sharing with a friend what's all this stuff you're doing with Buddhist awareness practice, mindfulness practice, you can say something. It's nice to be able to, you know, just in a simple way, articulate why we're doing the practice, whether you want to call that an aspiration or goal. We need some sense of why we're doing this practice because it's not easy. I'm sure a lot of you have discovered that. So to be able to aspire to be with the conditions of my life, not having to you know, demand that my life, the moment, be different than it is. But to really be able to receive the conditions to be intimate, to be relaxed and open, and free of that conflict or that struggle with the conditions. Doesn't mean we always like the way it is, but we are okay when there are some moments that are unpleasant, just like we can be or okay when there are some moments that are really pleasant. And isn't it interesting, you know, that we've had a mind our whole life, a heart, a mind, this sensitivity, this capacity for knowing, right? Clearly it's the most relevant thing about being a human being. And even though we might have really taken care of our car and some of you really take care of your computers and your, you know, Whatever you're into, your clothes, your kitchen gadgets, your home, your garden, your children, right? But how much attention, how much care, how much sensitivity, devotion have we brought to the mind, to the heart? And that's sort of interesting. I mean, it's understandable because whatever the mind is, it's subtle. I mean, relative to taking care of our cell phone. The mind is sort of subtle. 
But that doesn't give us rights not to be interested and not to take care of it. We have the capacity to get to know the heart and mind and to really learn how to take care of it. And I like this simple way that Gil Fronstall maps out how to take care of the mind. And this is, you know, just really central to the way the Buddha talks about taking care of our heart and mind. Gil mentioned in an article that you that we want to learn how to know the mind. Yeah, just like keep the mind in mind. <laughs> I know that sounds weird. I'll talk about that in a moment. We want to learn how to train the mind. You can't really train or shape the mind until we really know it. And then we want to liberate or free the mind. And these are clearly overlapping endeavors to know, to shape or train the mind, and to free the mind, to liberate the mind. But this whole value of retreating and sitting every day, it really speaks to wanting to take care of the mind and heart. And, you know, every night before we fall asleep, when we're lying in bed or getting ready for bed, it's really, like, as we assess that day, it's really appropriate appropriate for us to ask, did I remember to take care of the mind today? How did I take care of the mind today? Or did I neglect it? What well, can I take care of the mind now? How, how might I do that? Who knows about how to take care of the mind that I could learn from? I mean, a lot of taking care of the mind, as we find out in our practice, is to stop scaring ourselves and to stop fighting with ourselves. I mean, one of the things that happens when we do sit or go on a retreat, we realize all the inner conflict. We have an experience, and then we're in conflict with the experience we're having because we want it to last, or we want it to go away, or we're bored with it. I mean, it's like, not like, it is a war. It's really this, uh, you know, being in conflict with our experience. So this first step, you know, getting to know the mind, knowing the mind. So just let's just reflect on that, because I'm guessing <laughs> we all have a mind, right? So what does it mean now, in this moment, to know the mind? What is the mind? Where is it? And in, in Buddhism, we'll say, this is the mind. Because whatever, like you're hearing my voice, or maybe you're seeing your computer screen, or sensing the body sitting, but whatever is being known right now is being known in the mind. So I know it's awkward in English to say it this way, but this moment, any moment, every moment is a mind, is the mind, a moment of mind maybe we could say. And then, of course, there's the next moment of mind, and then there's the next moment of mind. But we don't normally frame experience in that way, because whatever's happening is always being known in the mind. 
every beautiful experience you've had, every horrendous experience you've had, every physical experience you've had, seeing, hearing, feeling, sensation, was known in the mind. It was a moment of the mind knowing an experience. So if we were to deconstruct what we mean by a moment of mind, we would say there's an experience being known. An experience being known. And if there's some hatred, some aversion or fear, then there's still an object being known, but that object being known is there with this fear, probably not so known. Right? So part of our practice is to bring a lot of integrity and in the experience being known so that there's nothing left out. So if there is fear there or hatred or some kind of conflict, then that's part of the experience that's being known. But we haven't really developed and that's really about the training the mind. When we're training the mind, we're developing the integrity of something is being known. And can that something being known, can it be recognized with nothing left out? And what that allows for is then wisdom is able to discern whether that something being known is causing planting seeds of suffering or not, or seeds of release. Is it wholesome or not? There's no shaping, there's no developing or training the mind without knowing the mind. And knowing the mind is really synonymous with being present, being mindfully aware. Here's how Gail says it, because he brings out this really important point. So I'm just going to read a couple sentences from his article. And the article, by the way, is Mindfulness Meditation as a Buddhist Practice. And Gil wrote that in 2006. I'm sure you can get that online. So he writes, The knowing aspect of mindfulness is deliberate and conscious. When you know something this way, not only do you know it, but also a presence of mind grows in which you clearly know that you know. I know that again, it sounds a little trippy. And he gives this simile that I think is helpful. Like if you're outside and there's some drama in the street, maybe there's a car accident, nobody's hurt, but there's a lot going on. Maybe the two people involved are arguing and then some spectators stand, and you're one of the spectators, and you're just aware of what's happening. And in the taking it all in, <clears throat> Gil has us imagine there's another person who also is just, in a sense, standing back and aware of the whole drama. And the two of you catch each other's eyes, and there's that moment of knowing that the two of us are knowing. Does that make sense? Thanks, Nancy. Nancy put the link for, I'm assuming, Gil's article on uh, that I'm referring to. And uh, Nancy will be leading the small groups in a little bit. Yeah, so let's just check that out now. 
So, of course, I'm assuming, unless you're sound asleep, we're conscious. But can there be a knowing that we're conscious? You see, it's a, it's a slightly different experience when we know that the mind is knowing. So when we're conscious, it just means the mind is consciously aware of experience. And when we're mindfully aware, when we know the mind, then we know that the mind is knowing. We know what it's knowing, and we know that it is knowing. So just play with that for a few seconds. I'll stop talking. So we're just knowing that there's knowing. And then the practice is keeping that in mind, that reflective knowing that there's knowing. And that's what we mean by getting to know the mind. Because the mind is primarily characterized by this knowing. So if we want to know the mind, we have to know the knowing even though it sounds a little trippy, it can be done. And, you know, part of the what makes it difficult is it's subtle, and our mind generally is attracted to what's more obvious and gross, like thinking about what I'm going to eat for lunch today, and then imagining all the options and noticing which options create the most saliva, <laughs> you know, and then strategizing from there. You know, how am I going to prepare it? When is this going to be over? All these sort of kind of gross uses of the mind. But then the mind remains unaware of the mind. So when we have some continuity with knowing the mind, then one of the things we realize about the mind is it's a river. It's changing. It's not a static thing. Gill refers to it as um, a process, or more accurately, a series of interacting processes. And it's nice to have that information so then when we study the mind, <clears throat> what the mind is knowing, that the mind is knowing, we see it as these interrelated processes, natural processes. And the key is, <clears throat> as a good scientist, we don't project or presume. We don't bring in expectations. We just take it for what it is. It's like what we might say is we really trust our subjective experience. That's the truth we know. And we don't presume there's more than the truth we know. Why would we do that? Well... We do it only because of habit, you know, the way we've been conditioned to think and frame things. So we're undoing that habit, the habit to imagine what the mind is based on our conditioning, our culture conditioning, for example, <clears throat> and train ourselves to come into alignment. And we see that the mind, like sensations, like the breath, like sound, like any other aspect of reality, is a river, a changing dynamic, a series of interacting processes. And interestingly, 
we can shape, we can train the mind, not by getting in there and fixing it, <clears throat> building a better mind, but simply by discerning this changing process of mind. We're discerning it when it's skillful, helpful, in the direction of release, and we're discerning the mind when it's not skillful, when it's in the direction of stress. And we can make do that discernment because we know how to know the mind as a changing natural process. So we see when the mind is sort of <clears throat> taking the bait and imagining getting revenge and hoping that somebody gets their just desserts who we think of as misbehaving and being bad. And we observe that and we observe <clears throat> the tension, the constriction that goes with that unfolding process of mind. We feel the mind creating hell in real time. And it's very compelling when we see that, like this wisdom, this kind of voice of wisdom and compassion arises. And if it had words, it would say, honey, this isn't helping. This is not helping. And the same thing when the mind is relating skillfully in ways that support the letting go, the releasing, then that's discerned as well, like this is helpful. But we can't shape and train and develop the mind unless we know the mind. <clears throat> and remember the last part of this getting to know the mind, caring for the mind, it's knowing the mind, training the mind, and then releasing, freeing the mind. And this is really, this last piece, the releasing is really the fruit of shaping the mind, training the mind. I remember Ajahn Sumedho, a teacher that, even though I've only practiced with him a little bit um, directly, but just his teachings over the decades have been so useful and you can still benefit from them. There so much is online. But he has a very pithy little statement, something like, it's not about following the mind. Because especially when he started to teach back in the 70s, there was a sort of anti-establishment notion that, you know, just let it all hang out. Just, you know, let go, let it be. Stop telling ourselves what to do, you know. And there's some truth to that. But actually, a lot of what we have to do, we have to appreciate and respect how bound the mind is in habit. And then the retraining, it isn't an aggressive, like I mentioned, it's really just arises from discerning what's skillful and unskillful. That is the change agent in the mind. Not actually getting in there and making the mind good and destroying what's bad. <clears throat> but this ongoing, gradual, steadfast discernment of what, when the mind is skillful, discerning that it's skillful. When the mind is unskillful, planting seeds of stress, then wisdom discerns that.
And it's that discernment, that seeing things as they are, that really transforms the mind. And those are the, those moments of freedom, of liberation, where the mind we the mind is experienced as being free of constriction, free of boundaries, you know, what we normally would call a mystical experience. Now, often when we have a deeper inside of the mind that is free of grasping, that's a nice pragmatic way to describe the basic insight in Buddhist practice, realizing the mind that is free of grasping, realizing the mind that is free of conflict, realizing the mind that is free of selfing, self-centeredness. Do we know that mind? Maybe a little intuition, maybe some of you some deeper intuition, deeper insights, maybe some of you not so much as of yet. But these are insights that are available to all of us. If we get to know the mind, and then if we train the mind to recognize what's skillful and unskillful, not what somebody tells us is skillful and unskillful, but what we see directly in our own heart, mind, the, the stream of our mind, the unfolding of our mind and heart, what we discern directly is in the direction of constriction and stress and unhealthiness. That's, we, we discern that. And then when we discern directly, immediately in our own experience, what's in the direction of release and peace and ease and connection and love, then the heart comes into a, a greater and greater balance. You know, the more pure, for lack of a better word, the more pure the mind becomes, the more simple. Pure meaning empty of greed, hatred, and delusion, or empty of the hindering, limiting qualities of the mind, like self-centeredness, conceit. When the mind gets really pure and simple, then the deeper ways, the more subtle ways that the mind is holding on in unskillful ways, they become apparent. The more subtle ways the mind grasps, the more subtle ways the mind selfs, you know, um, frames things in self-centered ways, the more subtle ways the mind is afraid. They come into view precisely because the mind is becoming more pure, more simple, more clear, more free. So it's like the process of training the mind as we use the purity of the mind to reveal the latent tendencies of impurity. It's a gradual process. First we get to know the mind, that allows us to purify the mind, train the mind to become more simple, more pure. It isn't so much the mind is becoming good as much as the impurities are falling away. Remember the image the Buddha uses here is like a, a boat that's been in the water in the ocean for a long time and then is pulled up into dry dock and over time all the riggings, the sails, all the stuff begins to rot away. 
And isn't that an interesting image that the Buddha used? Because it isn't so much Mark as getting himself to some holy place, as much as Mark as the mind has gotten to know the mind, <clears throat> has become steady in the awareness of this is being known, these interacting processes, natural processes of the mind. There's a knowing, and that a knowing allows for all of the impurities, all of the greediness, all of the fear and hate, all of the distractedness, the lack of clarity, doubt, spinning of doubt, allows all that to slowly, gradually be abandoned, fade away, rot away. And what remains is the mind that is unencumbered by selfishness, by hatred, by delusion, by greed, by restlessness, by dullness. And the more pure the mind gets, like I mentioned, the more clearly it sees any remaining habits of distortion. The Buddha talks about four kinds of distortions. Imagining things are permanent when they're changing. Imagining things are self when they're nature. Imagining things are beautiful when they're neither beautiful nor ugly. They're just what they are. And imagining things are satisfactory when there is no experience that's actually satisfactory. It doesn't mean experience is bad when we say it's not satisfactory. It just means it's not worthy of grasping. We can't really hold to it. Whatever nice experience you've had in your life, were you able to hold on to it? No. Even the memory, even like noticing our mind going back to that memory gets old, doesn't it? Because we know we're trying to feed on something that was long ago. You know, whatever that imagining is that you keep bringing up or we keep bringing up, it's almost as if we expect that if I really bring up that really nice experience, I'll be able to in some way feed on it. The ego wants to feed on it, but it gets more and more stressful the more we try to live out of the past. So then what do we do? We imagine some nice future for ourselves and we try to feed on that. Well, that's also stressful because however kind of, you know, however we might imagine it in intimate detail, it's not real. We can't feed on what we imagine. We can only connect to what's here and now. This is being known and realize what's helpful and not helpful. Like grasping this moment isn't helpful. Letting go is helpful. And this really is what retreat practice is all about. Getting to know the mind, training the mind through the discernment of what's skillful and unskillful, and then liberating the mind. Realizing these moments where selfing, we're grasping, we're craving ceases, and there's a little glimpse, a little taste of the mind free of grasping. And then that builds what we call faith, confidence. Oh, this practice works. It really delivers. So we're more willing to go on retreat or do our next day sit, maybe sit a little longer, maybe someday sit twice a day. And we're more willing to practice all day long. So we're not dependent on our 30 minutes of formal meditation time, 
but we're really knowing the mind, training the mind, freeing the mind all day long. And this is when our practice really begins to take off. I mean, it just makes so much sense. If we're only doing practice 30 minutes a day, and then we're <clears throat> acting in a diluted way 16 hours a day, well, <laughs> what's going to have the greatest conditioning effect on the heart and the mind, right? We, at some point, we have to realize that the daily sits and the time we can get on retreat is all it's all about creating the ground to practice more and more in daily life as one of my friends and teachers steve armstrong some of you know steve wonderful teacher says he used to say he used to make this argument i'm not sure he was the first but you know it's all about this lifestyle of mindfulness this lifestyle of awareness otherwise it's not really going to happen and that's why community is important. We want to build around us the supports. So this becomes the be the biggest or deepest value that we have. Knowing the mind, training the mind, freeing the mind. And it doesn't get in the way of earning our living or having good friendships or contributing to justice around us in our world or creating some effective response to climate change or whatever moves our heart. Getting to know the mind, learning how to train the mind, realizing how to free the mind, it will allow us to do everything else that needs to be done. It's really an act of love, I think, more than anything. Saida Uteshaniya says, First we must ask ourselves, what is our relationship to reality? What is our understanding of life? From this we will find meditation is really the only sensible approach to our reality and the problems that can arise from living. We can use it as an escape or an avoidance of life, or we can use it as a practice to attend to life. And that's really the idea here. So for those of you who can stay for the small groups or any time in the next week, what I would recommend is that you just talk with your friends or stay for the small group that Nancy will help organize and really discuss your relationship to your daily sitting or maybe you just sit a few times a week or your retreat practice. And, you know, you'll have a mixed group. So some of you might have done lots of retreat practice or have a really robust daily sitting practice. Others may be newer to the practice and you just sit periodically or only when you come to groups like this. Otherwise, you don't really have a formal practice. But just to share together, like, your, how you've been valuing that time, the supportive conditions to be able to, tr to uh, know the mind, <clears throat> train the mind, release the mind. What have been the supporting conditions for that kind of learning? What gets in the way? How has it crept up, <clears throat> become higher and higher on your priority list? <clears throat> this value of taking care of the mind as the preeminent value. Even like, I know it might be shocking to say this, but even those of you who might be caring for an infant you know, where it seems like by far the most important thing. Even 
just open your mind to that. It still may be more important to know, to train, and to release your mind, even more important than the child. It may be essential in order to take care of the child in any sort of loving and wise way. So let me just end with this poem from um, Maya Angelou. Somebody uh, in our community sent this to me recently. I love this quote. We, unaccustomed to courage, exiles from delight, live coiled in the shells of loneliness until love leaves, a, leaves its high holy temple and comes into our sight to liberate us into life. Love arrives and in its train comes ecstasies, old memories of pleasures, of pleasure, ancient histories of pain. Yet if we are bold, love strikes away the chains of fear from our souls. We are weaned from our timidity. In the flush of love's light, we dare be brave. And suddenly we see that love costs all we are and will ever be. Yet it is only love which sets us free. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.